Hello, everyone, and welcome to Through the Undertow, the podcast geared towards parents and caregivers raising children who are victims of child sexual abuse. I'm Nicole Lowell, your host. As always, none of the advice given can take the place of your own medical and legal professionals, but we hope you're able to gain some additional knowledge in your quest to help your children. Each episode page on our website, as well as the show notes, will list any trigger or content warnings, so please take a look if you need that info. Now, with that, come join me as we wade through the undertow. Thank you so much for joining us today. Our episode today is going to be featuring Kalpa Gupta, and she is the owner of Connext. And I'm going to allow Kalpa to introduce herself and give the audience a little bit of information about that. Thank you for joining us today, Kalpa. Hi, Nicole. I am so grateful to be here on, and really kudos to you for creating this platform. Uh, my name is Kalpa Shrigupta. I go by Kalpa. And Kalpa means imagination and Shri means beautiful. So I like to say somebody who has beautiful imagination. So, And really my dream is to have, create a kinder world for children and women who have been sexually abused so that they can claim their power, live with joy, and really show up fully and engage with life, right? And that's why I'm here. Just a little bit about me. I experienced childhood sexual abuse and I've gone through my own healing journey in some ways for the last decade. I am here to share some of the possibilities of, you know, what, what my experience was and what helped me and, 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 and how I've come here so far. Part of the reason in being here is also about I help other women and families with consulting and coaching. Oh, wow. That's amazing. First of all, let me say, I love your name. That's beautiful. I, that's amazing. It's just a beautiful, beautiful name. So can you please tell the audience a little bit about your journey, about your past and how you ended up where you're at today? Sure. Um, so I like to tell this in the form of a Christmas sticker story. So my son must have been around three year old. I came back from work. I was like really in a environment where I felt like my values were not aligned. I had I was leading a large global team and my son was three and I came exhausted and he was playing with this. You know, when you donate to charities, they send you stickers, right? He was playing with the sticker. I wanted to put him to bed. So I just literally snatched the thing from him because he was just being he didn't want to go to bed and he was playing. And I am like, you know, like a mom of a three year old exhausted and like, and this is bedtime. And I literally, but I was so absent from what that child was doing, like literally in my own head, I took it and I shoved it in the trash can that was the restroom next to the bedroom, right? And the next thing I hear is that child crying, right? My son crying and I'm going like, what did I just do, right? Like, and I didn't realize that it, he think, thought it was his stick, a Christmas sticker. I thought it was just mine. Why is he playing? Like he needs to go to bed and it's trash. Like I don't need it. But that to me, like, was a low point in my life where I felt like, you know, there was something clearly overwhelming for me at work. There was something I wasn't feeling like right. And then here's the child who every little demand that he had, it just seemed to trigger me. And that led me down a path where something is wrong. You know, I was also in a to toxic workplace. And I remember talking to my husband that something is not right. I want to go to therapy. And then I chose to push the can down the road. And six months later, I quit that work. And around the same time, I had hired an executive coach. So when I was having all these conversations, one of the things they said in passing is, you know, there are women who grow the corporate ladder or they are, you know, hiding behind achievement. One of their clients had experienced something like this. And I hadn't shared it at that point. But that's when it just stuck me that, oh, you know what? Like, I'm constantly kind of worried. And a lot of my repressed memories around childhood sexual abuse came up. That led me down my own like healing journey because my abuse had started around the same time I was my son's sale, around three or four years, that four years old. And it went on for over a decade, like until my early 20s by multiple people. Oh my goodness. I think that that's something that people don't recognize and should, especially in terms of reporting. There's always so much criticalness around why didn't you say something, first of all, I think when you're a child, all bets are off because you're taught by the people that are doing these things to you not to say anything. And I think that there's a lot of children like you and my children as well, where their memories were repressed and they just were buried. And 
I also think it's interesting that you said about your son triggered you, obviously not in a negative way, but in the sense of like reminding you what happened. I think that that's also important to note is we don't always know what's going to remind us or, you know, allow those memories to come forward that something horrible happened to us. So I think that's really good that um, you're able to speak on that part of it too. Those are all things that I think everybody needs to sort of be aware of and, and recognize. Yes. And Nicole, you touched on something that we asked the kids, why didn't you tell something sooner? And I'll tell you why. <laughs> More than 90% of the cases, in fact, 93% of the cases that the child knows the abuser, it's somebody trusted, either a caregiver, a sibling, an elder sibling, a cousin, a, a teacher, I don't know, a babysitter, like a priest or like you name it, right? And in fact, 40% of the cases, the, the cases where some a child is abused, it's I think it's sibling abuse, uh, right? And it's more than even like caregiver abuse. So in U.S., one in four girls and one in six boys are abused before they are 18. I grew up in India. I think stats are very similar. They're underreported. Globally, I believe one in four people essentially have been abused before they are 18, right? So how can you go and tell? And and who do you even tell? Because, you know, like in my case, it was my, I lived in a joint family. My dad's own brother, younger brother, he was a teenager and he abused me. My cousin, you know, like uh, another cousin who abused me. Um, my next door neighbor who happened to be a teacher, he came and, you know, he abused me. And so these are trusted people. And part of it is as a child, you know, one of the things you don't talk about is as a child, you are also aroused as you're going through. So you think something is wrong and then you don't know what to do with it, you know, and or once you call a victim, you are repeatedly like you become victim and you are scared of unsettling the family dynamics, right? You are told not to tell. And even if you think that you can tell, like, why would you? Because part of it is like the people that were supposed to be around me and protect me they missed it. They might be loving. I love my parents, right? But they were busy. They were doing something else. And the other part, I would say the culture that I grew up, I knew other kids were also abused. So part of it, at, at some point, we took it on us, like our responsibility to protect ourselves or the younger ones, towing around the people, right? And then I left home when I was 16. And, you know, like, uh, and unfortunately, something still happened when I met some people. And um, you think it's a thing of the past, right? So we think you want to run away. You want to avoid. Either you depress or you run away. So in my case, it wasn't as much depressed memories. In my case, I thought, oh, thank goodness it's over because I'm away. Little did I know that things get triggered. And which is the important point for audience to know that two times in your life, you, you know, as parents, just know that you might get triggered. Your children might get triggered. One, your children become the same age that when the abuse started, right? So, and then two, when you see your children going through adolescence, uh, those are the times. So usually that's why you see women or people like coming, start to come out in their mid thirties or thirties. And then also the average age at which people disclose their uh, trauma is around 52 years, if they ever, right? Yeah. I think people don't pay attention to that kind of a statistic. And usually by then, a huge part of it is you're established and you're safe. And so, you know, essentially whatever blowback you're going to get. And the sad part is that in our society, we still give a lot of that to victims. They're blamed in a lot of different ways. And so you have an idea, at least when you disclose later in life, that that you know negativity isn't going to impact you as much. You know, you brought up some good points in terms of people in your family did this to you. And I think, you know, usually people that we know, and I think that that's very important to note. And not only that, even when it's like, not necessarily like a family friend or a family member, there's still grooming that goes on ahead of time. So you are still, as the victim, made to, you know, trust that person and rely on that person in some way before anything happens. I mean, the thing I think that people forget about is when a person is an actual sexual predator in that regard, but when it's not a violent rape that wasn't planned, when it's not anything along those lines, when it's actual sexual abuse, that the, the part of that that people aren't paying attention to is predators are in it for the long haul. They will take as long as they need to take to get their 
to groom whomever they need to groom. And on top of that, they groom not only their victims, but their character witnesses. I read that the other day where it was like predators groom their character witnesses as much as they groom their victims. And I think that that's something that we have to pay attention to. Absolutely. So both parts are true, right? So, you know, they groom the kids and then then kids are also blaming sometimes themselves. I can't tell you how many times I have questioned myself, why didn't I run away? Why was I, you know, still in the situation or why did I not tell anybody like um, or something must be wrong with me? Well, not only that, you also mentioned about, um, I think, a fact that's very real is that sometimes it's enjoyable for the children that as a child, I can imagine that you're wondering, you know, why do I have to keep this secret? Is this good or bad? And I know that, um, like, for example, for my daughter, the reality is sometimes good and bad is very blurred to her even now because it's like, well, how can something that feels good be bad? And I think that there's probably a lot of children, unfortunately, that go through that and then, you know, add it to like, well, this is my fault or I was responsible or even like it's consensual as if somehow it could ever be consensual with a child and they just don't understand. Yeah, um, that is true. And then you touched on something about the predators. There are something called, I happened to be another conversation a few months ago with somebody in New Zealand and predators also have enablers around them, right? So there are people who are actually arranging the meeting or especially if they are falling into any sex trafficking, that kind of a ring, then there is taking you somewhere or arranging. And and if there are gang involvements and all, I mean, that uh, that's not my expertise, but these are things that happen in real life to, in an extreme form, right? So it's not just, you know, they're grooming the child. They are also earning the trust of the caregivers. And some uh, if uh, and sometimes caregivers are the, you know, the abusers. But in other cases, you know, they are earning that trust somehow, you know. So if one thing the audience, I want people to take away the parents is be watchful of signs that your children is giving, like, like who you leave them around. And the one thing that I would say, having gone through it from the parent side, is that I think the thing that I would do differently if I could is to express to my children in front of anybody that I was concerned about and in front of my ex that expressed at that time, hey, just so you know, if anything like this ever happens, you can come to me. And I don't care what anybody else says. I want you to know that you can come to me and miss it. Because I will tell you that there were a couple of times where I was a little concerned. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, I brought those concerns up to my ex and said, hey, is this something that we need to worry about? And he always reassured me or told me that I was overreacting or would say if, if I was talking about somebody else, wouldn't really answer, but would kind of say, well, let's just keep an eye on it. It'll be fine, whatever, you know, kind of poo-pooed it away and dismissed it. But I never said it in front of my children. It was always a private conversation. No, we can't talk about that. That's taboo in front of the kids. And I think that the thing that I would do differently now is not be afraid to say something so that the kids knew. I mean, unfortunately, in my story, my husband lied to them and said, I knew And I would go out of town on work. And every time I would go out of town for work, he would use that as affirmation. See, she knows. She doesn't care. She knows. Don't talk to her about it. She doesn't want to hear about it. And I had no idea that those things were going on. And it wasn't until years later, obviously, when my kids' memories started to come out. And and even then, I so they had repressed memories. But I think when my son first told me, he didn't say it was his dad. He said it was, he wasn't sure who it was. And I really kind of feel like part of that was denial and he didn't want to believe that it was his dad. But I also feel that there's like that tiny part of him that was like, I don't know how my mom's going to react to this. And I just want to like introduce it slowly and see how she reacts. And then I was supportive and it was very much like, please keep me posted. Like, let me know, you know, we need to take care of this, whatever you need. And I think that made him recognize. But I can say that even now, I think both of my children have a complicated relationship with me because of that history, because they believed that I knew. And I have to be like, remove my ego enough to say, I'm not responsible for this. But at the same time, 
you can have those emotions that I am because you were told that I was. And it becomes layered and complicated in those instances, I think. It is so complicated. And I can say from my perspective, I started sharing my story in my mid-30s, right? Slowly in, with people I knew. Um, but I didn't tell that to my husband or my parents until about a year, year and a half ago. Like, so, and I'm 43 now, right? So it's, uh, and I've been married to my husband for nearly 16 years. I've known him almost 17 years. So it runs we carry so much shame and blame and guilt up until that point. And in addition to that, you mentioned something about questioning yourself. As a parent, you're questioning, like, you know, sometimes you're, even though there are signs, you might think, oh, it might be something else. In your case, there was manipulation, right? But that is very real. And even when the kids are manipulated, don't go and tell, or, you know, they might do something or, you know, oh, they know. So, for me, I think what I have struggled is on the other side almost, right? In some cases, in some cases, the healing is done. In other cases, the healing is a lifelong process. You know, those that have been will tell you is almost working and repairing my relationship with my mom, um, even in therapy. Even this morning, as we were talking right before this, I'm like, tell me what was, what's your memory of me on your, my first year, my second year? Because I'm like trying to dig out details of how this something like this could happen. And then I have to be mindful now, uh, you know, my mom is, uh, has experienced this, that she also forgives herself, like it's not her responsibility. Like I forgive her, but I am still hard, right? In some cases, some conversations are so triggering between parents, between uh, as a couple and as a parent, as a child, like these are the three closest relationship in some ways, like we enact the same drama like if we don't heal our parent-child relationship we take the same dynamics in our as a, in a spouse and then as a children so part of the work I do and why I share this that it's normal you know that what you're experiencing I wish I could say otherwise but the children are going to you know have all kinds of responses mm -hmm. and part of the reason why I started sharing I remember when my son was around three or maybe a few years later after that he was like tiny being next to me, right? Like next to me. And I mm -hmm. am, I'm like going, if something were to happen to him, right? Would it be his fault? No way. So why am I being hard on me? I think that changed the thing why I wanted to start sharing, right? Oh, that's good. That's good that you were able to have that awareness of I wouldn't blame him. So why should I blame myself? I think that's I should good. blame myself. And then also that's the reason I started having conversations with him that the, the learning that you talked away about uh, talked about taking away from the situation. So you know, his school probably started talking about anatomies later. He's nine now, but I probably started way sooner. I have told no one can touch him other than his parents unless he has consent and even something were to happen between him and I, like, or him and dad or something, he's he's got full right to say what, what touch he doesn't feel okay. In mm -hmm. fact, I have probably gone, take, gone to the other extreme where one day we were playing some game and I just pulled his pants. It was like supposed to be a silly game, like three of us, were not, not from, um, like he was wearing his underwear. Sure, sure. Right? It was like a few years ago. And he just looked shocked. He said, mommy. And I can't tell you how, how it was funny. It was sad. And it was, I had to go. I had, it was a teaching moment for me going boundaries, right? So because, you know, back growing up, this was like, sometimes you're teasing each other and it's like fun, but I was absolutely not okay. So with us, it's like an open conversation about what is okay, what is not. And even he's aware of my experiences of why I am vigilant in some cases or why if some people, if I see publicly some friends or anyone giving him a hug, I'm always watching and I want him to know that he can say no to that if he doesn't feel okay. And I think that that's unfortunately um, one of the issues that even nowadays people are still pushing back on really hard is boundaries is if a family member wants a hug, you should give it to them. And it's like, no, no, I don't have to if I don't want to. And I think the thing that people forget is that when you put a child in that way, that if they don't do something to make somebody else feel comfortable, then they're wrong, that you're setting them up for that victimization. You are literally setting them up to say that they're not as important 
their needs and wants aren't as important and feelings. And predators will absolutely prey on that. They rely on that and count on that and utilize that when they're grooming. And I think that, that that's something that parents need to recognize, that it, if you don't want to make a big deal out of it with your family, you have to kind of think about it. Like, would you rather have Aunt Mary upset that your son didn't give her a hug or would you rather set your son up to potentially be victimized later? And obviously, we could say that there's not that maybe that wouldn't happen, but I would argue with the statistical evidence that we've already discussed today of how many children are victimized. And I would say that if there's underreporting anywhere, it's in the male population. Oh, absolutely. You know, I think that that's where it's like, well, you could say that all you want, but how many times are we in a situation? And honestly, just like you, where it's like they don't say anything until later in life. And um, I mean, I can tell you in my family, I mean, male members have also come across, uh, come up and said that something like this happened, right? And it's not until I started sharing and some of these men are way past their midlife, right? You know, so some of the people I know, right? So the more I start talking as an adult in my business circle, in my professional networks, in my, you know, different groups that I'm part of, like the more people come and confide and men, absolutely, they would drag their feet to therapy. They would drag their feet to, you know, like in terms of um, just mental health or sometimes just a shame. I think just masculinity, you know, like, yes. that, you know, that men are not supposed to cry. Men don't have emotions. Oh, you're not tough. You're supposed to rough it out. Or, oh, if that touch happened, like, how, how can I explain that somebody touched me and that wasn't okay or somebody raped me and that wasn't okay? Like, what would my identity be? Sometimes they can't even fathom that, like, they don't have to take on the burden of maintaining family honor, right? And I, it's almost like people wonder, and these are kids, right? So they're growing up and they, like, with this whole false narrative about what that family was or what things were missed or what were not, even men take on that burden, you know, because that they're not seeing examples. So um, there's a great book by um, The Drama of the Gifted Child by Alice Miller. Okay. It can be triggering for many folks, but uh, I have found that book like so amazing. One of the books that I recommend always people like reading. It's, it just puts like childhood abuse and things in a very, very beautiful is all I can say, right? It's painful and sad and it has helped me explain things. In, in a way that um, that made sense. Okay. Okay. That sounds great. I, I think that our audience members could very much benefit from that. And I think that, because I do think that even, even when you're in it, there's times when you're trying to think about it or even explain it to somebody else and you're struggling because it's like, what do you, how do you, how do you say like my children were violated in a way that they never should have been, or even I was violated in a way that I shouldn't have been. And then I feel like, I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like when you first start talking, you have a lot of people that are very much like, oh, me too, me too. But you also have a lot of people that are like instantly, I don't believe that. Are you sure about that? You know, just questioning, but not in a let me gather information way, in a very aggressive attacking way, you know? Yeah. So here is what I have found more. And I'm speaking at three different points in my life. One when as a child, I was sharing with other kids and I knew it was their experience, there was no questioning, right? Oh, but it was more like, oh, this happened. Like, it wasn't good or bad. You don't know whether it's right or wrong. You're just wondering, you know, something is, this is not to be talked about publicly, but this is a secret, right? But at the mm -hmm. same time, you are like, equally like scared, but you're putting up this brave front, like, okay, we don't know how to navigate. So it's a very different experience. Then I, when I was in my early teens, I shared it with a very close friend and they said something in a way, I don't remember the words right now, but it, it was the effect it had on me was it was as if it was my fault. I played into it. And which I honestly, I believed partly up until then, right? Which is why I carried on, right? And then when I shared in my 30s, I shared with a very close group of people, not my family members, but I was part of some communities where I shared. And then I walked through with my therapist. I remember they gave me the permission that I didn't to share with anybody unless I wanted to. And actually, I forgot one more thing. I had shared with a guy that I was dating or maybe phone dating, like at some point mm -hmm. like for marriage proposals back in India. 
And I had explained, but then that guy turned out to be a cheater. So then I figured, oh, I'm going to be careful who I share with and why does anybody even need to know about this? So I had this thing as, you know what, as far as I'm concerned, it's gone. Nobody's business. It's my problem. And I'm okay. I'm safe now, right? So when I started sharing with my husband and my family members, I was very clear when I was sharing that I am sharing with them because I have certain dynamics and certain tendencies that I needed their help. I wanted them to be aware, like why I struggle sometimes in intimacy, why I'm hypervigilant sometimes or why I am controlling in some ways. So those tendencies come up, right? Or, or why I don't trust my child to be with a babysitter, right? Or another right. family member, like why one of us has to be there. But I was very clear with when I shared with my mom and other members that I didn't want any of them to go and have a conversation with any of my abusers because they, some of them are still alive. I said, if you feel a charge about my abusers, right, it is because you have something with them like or something that you and I haven't resolved. So from my karma wise, I'm OK, I am safe, I'm powerful and I can have any conversation with them. I have forgiven them and I had reached a place of forgiveness. And I think it's been a little bit of a spiritual, mental health, all kinds of journey. So, but then for a children, it's different because, you know, if you're a parent of a minor child, you feel responsible, right? Navigating those conversations, like who do you have conversations with? Like my mom, even in my adulthood, when she was talking to my aunt and others, like in one case, as my abuser's mom. She chose not to have the conversation because I had told her I'm okay. She doesn't need to. But when I shared it with both of them, then they they had their own emotional responses, right? Like mm-hmm. the other cousin, my abuser's sister, she came back and said that, hey, somebody also tried to abuse her, right? And it was one of the, uh, somebody in the family and it, because we hadn't shared. So I had, thankfully in my case, it was all around support within the family. Okay. Um, part of it was, I think I had done the work on healing myself and there was no residual like charge around anything. I had even had conversations with two of my abusers that were alive. So other people's reactions or responses um, didn't have as much impact on me. Like I was willing to hold base for them. I don't know how I would have dealt honestly if it was my own child and, you know, if they were mine. There's definitely, I think there's definitely a difference when it's yourself versus when it's your child. I think that there, that in, in almost every aspect of life, we tend to forgive people over actions to us and then not be as forgiving over actions to our child because of the relationship, obviously, between our children and ourselves and what we want for them and we just want better for them. And then to not get it or to have something happen, especially that was out of our control. I think can be very charged. Yeah. The one thing it may help, Nicole, as I'm listening to you um, with the audience, with parents is, you know, part of the reason why we can't forgive others or like as a parent is also because we are carrying judgment for our own self. Right. So I, you know, and that is the hardest, right? Like, how could I have missed this? Or like in my mom's case, when we have the conversation, like, even though I said, I forgive, she was she was like, I know you've forgiven, but I remember her sending like a long text. How do I like like writing like a very emotional letter, right? Like in a group, like family group. And I'm like, mom. And then I was upset. I said, look, now you're making it more about you. Like, mm-hmm. I'm telling you I'm okay, right? Why are you taking on you to solve like my emotion, manage my best thing? You know, yes, if you, you might having... But what my mom was having was a separate response because she was still in the victim mindset because of her own abuse, you know, intergenerational. So she came to the place of being having compassion for herself, that knowing that she did the best she knew in that circumstances because she was 19 or 20, you know, like when I was born, right? She had a joint family. She was cooking, busy. My dad was busy earning. Like they were like, it was a very dysfunctional, like yes, loving family, but also dysfunctional. She did the best. So I believe I would offer a resource for parents to be able to really effectively support their kids. At some point, you do need to forgive yourself because then you can actually fully be with the child and, you know, what's hold that space versus, you know, like uh, projecting perhaps our own insecurities on the child and and in that healing journey. Absolutely. And I do think that at some point we have to sort of recognize 
in a journey like that, that they are separate, but that it's not as a parent, it's not my child's job to make me feel better. Yeah, It's my job to go and seek out that, you know, if I need to find mental health assistance, therapy or whatever it is, like to help myself to feel better. It's not my children's job in their trauma to also sometime, you know, somehow figure out that I'm struggling and to be able to say, it's not your fault. And I think that we have to recognize that. But I also think that we just have a long way to go as a society. We have to start pushing back harder on if a parent doesn't know it's not their fault. Obviously, I'm sure there are a few cases where a parent turned a blind eye more than didn't know, you know what I'm saying, where there were very clear signals. But even that, there's what could be very clear to us might not have been very clear to them. I think if you have a puzzle, but you don't have all the pieces, if they're the most important pieces, you might still not get the full picture. You might still be not understanding what's going on. And then once you get those pieces, I know for me, there was a lot of times where I thought things or, or, or questioned things or wondered things. And because I didn't have that piece of the puzzle, I came up with different answers for why things were happening or what, whatever. And once I got that piece of the puzzle, then it was very much, holy cow, wait a second then this is from that and this is from that and this is from that and this is from that. And I just didn't have that peace to know in the moment. And I think that as parents, we have to, as you said, show ourselves some grace, but also recognize that our children don't have to make us feel better about the trauma that they went through. Oh, absolutely. And then um, as a society, having compassion for people, like they can question, but just know that if somebody is sharing with you, it's your absolute honor and privilege that they are sharing with you, right? You know, you have no business questioning, making them feel uncomfortable. I do believe the part of the reason people question is because they are, you know, perception is projection. So they might have their own share of disbelief problems in life. And sometimes just projecting all the things on others might be it. So I'll tell you, like I've spoken in front of hundreds of people by now, like, you know, executives and women and people in power but there was one I've only got one pushback where so far I was speaking at a I think it was a women's forum I can't remember the exact meeting but then they I received an email afterwards saying this belongs to a professional space and I and I had to go or you should talk to educators and I had to go wait so I'm an entrepreneur and I'm in a professional space so you just undermine my authority and my membership in the space so and I then I process that with my therapist and, you know, my coaches also, right? I also have a support system and I'm a coach and consultant, but I, you know, your clients, your people, everybody has a way of triggering. So I remember from that, that this person was carrying their own trauma, perhaps didn't want to see something, right? The other reason why sometimes people question or pe why people are not able to come up as a society, right? And, and share about it is sometimes people are dependent because of their financial, you know, well-being or place to stay or, you know, everything on another partner. And, you know, it's a hard battle sometimes that there's no judgment, you know, people are doing the best they can. Sometimes you just don't know what, where would you go and live. And, and if you were to leave that person and take your kids somewhere, like, would somebody believe you? It's a little bit of a chicken or the egg problem, but which is why it's so important that people, uh, you know, those who are able to share, share the story to know that there are resources. And, you know, it's not about if, if you go and share with a group and they question, just walk away. It's your choice to further explain or not explain, right? Absolutely. So you to indulge in that conversation. Absolutely. No, I definitely agree with that, that it's your choice and it doesn't make it any less real that you've chosen not to defend yourself to somebody who's being closed-minded and not willing to really listen anyways. Exactly. So tell me about your company. Tell me about Connext. Yes. So my company is named Connext came from, you know, what's next for Kalpa and Connection? Because guess what? I really wanted a dis... Uh, I was feeling disconnected and lonely and I was running away from something. I know I was running for... Action, right. So my intention behind the creation of the company is I want to impact 100 million lives in 10 years. And that mission has become clear over the years in my healing journey. And we do that through consulting and coaching. And primarily what we work on is building trust. Because what I realize is with abuse, particularly childhood sexual abuse, like we have so many coping mechanisms. They serve sometimes us well, 
my trauma taught me to be very resilient, very, uh, I'm very good control, right? So I'm planning, I'm an A-type, right? So achieve, and we hide behind our achievement. And sometimes those coping mechanisms don't work. The mon- the outside title, money, and these things, we take take those as equivalent of self-worth, right? Like mm-hmm. when you don't have it, means, oh, I have lack. And when I have it, means I'm okay, I'm good, right? So my mission is really to break that myth that we are born on this planet. We are soul. We are loved. We are worthy. We are whole, right? And no incident can break that soul and take that willingness and goodness that we came on this planet with. And so I still get goosebumps every time I say that. (laughs) No, I think that's amazing. That's beautiful. And I think people definitely need to know that, that we started out as this beautiful being and our experiences obviously help to you know, form who we are as we get older, but we can take that step back and say, okay, but we don't get to choose our experiences always. But what we have to kind of recognize, and I think can be really difficult for a lot of people, is that even though we can't choose our experiences, we can choose what we do afterwards. You know, we can choose how we allow those experiences to define us or whether or not we allow those experiences to define us. And I think that that can also be difficult as a parent for your child to not label your child in a particular way. And I think we have that's a danger that I think parents can sometimes run into when you have a child that's a victim of, you know, child sexual abuse is because you want to protect them. But sometimes within that protection, it's that labeling of victimization. And I think that can be dangerous for children. Yes, yes, um, 100%. And so on that note, I would say, so I, before I started the company, I worked in almost 15 years across multiple different industries, like multiple different companies, American Express, Zelle, G. I started my career in GE. And then prior to that, I worked in research in India that are leading think tank. And I had all these big brands behind me, right? And and I was also privileged to have a lot of support in my career across different pro- functional lines, right? Marketing to analytics, fraud risk, and product um, roles. And there came a point where my identity was still like a little bit of a victim, right? Like so many things were happening to me. I would attract constantly like toxic bullies in my life, particularly in the workplace, uh, a couple of situations. And I think those situations taught me who I was and who I wasn't and what kind of behavior was okay and what wasn't okay. And and in some ways, I was recreating that trauma because, you know, when when you are living your life with a victim mindset, feeling like something is wrong with you deep inside, you keep giving people the grace. And then you don't give that same grace to you when someone speaks to you in a certain way or behaves in a certain way. You Somewhat like you wonder, oh, maybe in this situation, this person was upset for something or maybe, you know, it, they might have had a bad thing. You keep giving grace, but guess what's happening on the other end? They are seeing you as somebody who can't defend themselves, somebody who has very low self-worth. And people, as you grow in your career, there are so many bullies in our corporate America. They just seek you out, right? They're also Absolutely. making you. So the similar abuse that happens in your work, uh, in your in childhood, in your real life, you will find similar people, right? So in some ways, if we, I think that lesson for parents here is once you find out your child has had these experiences, the, the label of victim and survivor, it helps to put things in context that this means that they have these, they might have these coping mechanisms or some health implications long term, right? So to be aware but. I would urge beyond a certain time frame, change that label. Like don't label it with, you know, with a certain identity because then that becomes your core identity and you start viewing your life that way. And that's where I think parents have a role to say your child is still whole. Like, you know, your child, yes, they had it. I'm, I'm, I'm not saying have reasonable, unreasonable expectations because depending on the situation, they may have a really tough time, you know? Absolutely. It would be different for each child. And and based on the circumstances, I agree with that, that you can't, like you said, after a certain time, but not saying how much time, because each child is going to be different. Each person is going to be different. That's no different than any trauma that we go through as people. Some of us are able to get through it a little bit quicker than other people. And I would say, unfortunately, the reality is that, that oftentimes those people that are able to get through a trauma quicker 
or seemingly quicker is actually because they've been through trauma before and they've become resilient from that. And so it helps them when they get something else going on to to sort of draw from that experience if they heal, obviously, if there was some healing. And also, I think that comparing to other people like, well, they're all better doesn't serve anybody. It's not helpful to anybody. It doesn't. You know, I remember having a conversation with someone and they were saying, oh, my, this thing was not as bad as yours because they just, you know, asked me to pick up my dress or they just kissed me on the lips. I'm like, hold on, stop a second. You are this year old, like a certain age. If your child was that age, would that be okay? Would that be an acceptable behavior? No. Right. So then why do you think that the comparison doesn't serve anybody? Like, you know, or, or I'm... Sometimes I've done that comparison. Oh, mine is like not that big a deal. You know, at least I wasn't, I didn't experience something more heinous, but it doesn't help. Your experience, your child's experience is their own unique experience, right? And and right. the comparison, it doesn't help anybody, right? And yeah. I try to uh, remind people that, you know, when we go to the doctor or the ER or whatever, and they're asking us about, how we feel. They're giving us a scale, but they're not defining what that scale is. They're allowing us to define it ourselves. And that's because what might be a 10 to me might be a five to someone else or vice versa. And I think that that's a huge thing that we need to recognize as people is that there are people out there that really don't actually experience physical pain, that that have something going on in their brain, not necessarily bad, but just something that that prevents them from experiencing physical pain. And so they have to decide if something else is going on with their body in a different way. And then there's other people, I'm sure, that for whatever reason, experience pain extremely strongly. And I think that in any way, shape or form, saying that one person is better or not better or anything along those lines, again, it's, it doesn't serve anybody. It's not helpful. And equally important, it's not true. Well, you said something um, that I want to double down on. It's about like the, you know, if somebody experiences multiple traumas, I mean, I won't necessarily say that makes them always resilient. So somebody, let's say I, you know, and this is like my point of view, like if I experience something, right, and I've had an otherwise loving childhood and everything else is going fine, I have so many other resources and gift in my life that this one gap, I might be more able to manage that versus somebody who has um, gone through repeated trauma multiple and has had not as, as much role model, right? Then it can really take them down, right? And it, reverse is also true. Here's one person, you know, who's experienced just like a lot of trauma, but they had somebody loving or some positive influence was there. So they are able to recover quickly versus this one person, you know, who who might have had something very minor, but then they had no loving role model or anybody else, right? right? Yeah. So it's a lot of it is like, you know, what epigenetics, like all of that, like that plays into, you know, the... the Absolutely. Or if you're in an environment where you're not only not being supported, but being discounted, I think those environments can be much more harmful, regardless of the extent of the trauma, regardless of whatever experiences you've had. If if someone is looking at you saying, I mean, I know, I know that there, there were some things that I had growing up that are not as bad as my own children, but in some ways that made me not as willing to ask the hard questions with my children when I was seeing things. Mm -hmm. You know, I feel like if I had had more support and validation of my own thoughts and feelings as I was growing up by my family, that then when I was having those thoughts and feelings and my husband was kind of dismissing it and discounting it, I probably wouldn't have been so easy to go along with that and been, okay, yeah, that's fine. That's right. Obviously, I don't know what I'm talking about. Obviously, I'm wrong. Obviously, I'm not paying attention, obviously. And I think that that can become, I, I think that that can actually be it, that, that that our society, because of that, my family is not like a horrible family. They're not in an, an unusual family in our country. And I think that it's a societal thing that has created this Really, I think it, we could put it onto a pandemic level of how many people are impacted by it. If we said X amount of kids got cancer, even if they didn't die from it, that would be something that that everybody would be jumping on. What? Oh my gosh, that's crazy. We need to investigate that, figure out what, why is that happening? How can we fix it? What's going on? But because it's this messier 
you know, trauma, we, we discount it and ignore it and try to hide it. And I think that that, that makes it worse for kids. And I agree with you in, in the sense of the support system can make or break anybody. If you are going through a lot of really difficult things and you have a really good support system, you could make it seem extremely easy. And it's not that it's easy, but it's that you have a lot of support. And again, like you said, you could be going through something very minor and struggling and having a really hard time with it. And part of that could be because you just don't have anybody to help you work through it. And you know you need to, but you don't know how. And there's a lot of questions. It just becomes difficult. So I agree with that assessment. You talked about your family being very, like, not unique. And I so agree. Like, you know, there was a study on this topic back in, like, late 90s by CDC and Kaiser uh, Permanente uh, on adverse childhood experiences, right? So which is basically three categories, your abuse, neglect, and family dysfunction. And abuse and neglect has like five categories and, you know, household dysfunction, five categories. But sexual abuse is one of those categories. So there are a total of 10 ACEs. And the study was done on like uh, 17,000, I think, um, Americans, like Caucasian middle-class America, what you would say typically, you know, 75% with college degree and such. And what they found is it's only about uh, 12% that had no adverse childhood experiences. That that included all kinds of, you know, like, and uh, that abuse and neglect uh, includes physical, emotional, sexual abuse, along with physical, emotional neglect, and then growing family dysfunction, such as, you know, any kind of divorce, separation, or substance abuse, like, parental illness, you know, like incarcerated, and I'm forgetting the last one, but of those 10. So imagine ACEs is very common, right? ACEs yes. are very common. And, uh, but then roughly two thirds reported at least uh, one ACE. And there was roughly, I think around another third had like four or more ACEs. But the implications of that is if you have four or more ACEs, you have four more you know, four and a half times more likely to develop depression and 12 times more like having suicidal thoughts. So as parents, as caregivers, I always encourage like people to know their ACEs because sometimes, yes, sexual abuse, managing that for child is one thing, but then also know your own family history and the child so that you're aware of, you know, some of the risk factors here. And it's possible to heal. It's, I think the first step is to know what the risk factors are. And then the reason it's important then to talk about, right? So now when you do your Connext work, so can you tell me a little bit about what exactly you do when you're coaching and sort of thing? Yeah, so in my coaching, it's mostly, um, look, my intention is to help sexually abuse. Right now, the practice is more around women and more adults, right? I don't work with children. Like, I'm not a therapist. I'll just say that up front, right? Sure, I'm a sure. person who's gone through trauma, who wants to make the trauma, like, trauma create trauma-informed workplaces because I believe when adults are showing and sharing, we will show the future footprint to children in terms of the possibilities, right? That they And we can break the cycle, that's all, right? So right. with work that I do, uh, my clients include veterans, some in academia who might have been, you know, done amazing in their life, but they are still like having the same fears of not being enough not being seen, not being heard, same same things keep showing up, same patterns, mm-hmm. right? Um, how I shift essentially their identities from shame, blame, and guilt to feeling integrated and whole. So it's a, each person's situation is different, but primarily I work with them mostly over the course of a year. And in some cases, they are either, you know, um, switching their careers, they are wanting to, you know, all this life, they have been following a certain path, which might not be their path. And now they are looking at, uh, mostly the ads are women 40 plus, you know. Absolutely. Um, so who, who wants the next their next legacy, right? So right. I worked with them on whether it's launching a business, whether it's uh, growing professionally more, uh, whatever that is, right, in, in realizing the dream. But really the work with me is when I started this path, Nicole, like I wasn't seeing very many people other than Oprah, maybe like people coming and saying, hey, I've been abused, like successfully. Right. Will also fear a lot of like loss. And I wondered like why, right? So uh, the work that I do is really to bring people front and center. And in some cases, they might want to share their stories and I will help them with that strategy, how to kind of move forward. And not everybody wants to go public and that's fine. But how do we 
restore that same soul that they they were they are essentially you know absolutely no i agree with that and i and i agree with you too in the sense of when i first started sharing um you know when i first found out what had happened to my children there was a conscious choice on my part of am i going to hide this or am i going to talk about it like if someone asks me how my kids are doing am i going to be honest or am i going to say they're fine and just move on and i made the choice it was like no i'm going to tell people because it's not okay to hide it and it's not my fault and people need to know that stuff's happening and it was interesting when i when i did that when i made that choice and i shared how many people responded with either that happened to me my family member, my friend, I know somebody that that happened to. And like so many people that knew somebody, you know, that had had an experience like that. And that was when I made the decision to do my podcast. And and also part of that was as I was searching, there was a lot of people like you who actually were, you know, victims of when they were younger and talking to people about how to sort of get through this journey and heal and whatever. But I wasn't finding the parents of like, this is what you do to help your children or to help you or to help whatever. And I just felt like, I think that while I said that it's not your children's job to make you feel better, we still have a journey as a parent that we're going through. We can't ignore that journey and pretend like it's not important. And equally important as we were just talking about where it's like, well, who's it worse for? Okay, well, that's not a part of the question right now. It's you need to uh, like deal and heal with your own baggage, essentially, and your own experiences that happen. If you don't know that it happened, you have to deal with those feelings when you find out. And if you do know that it happened, you have to deal with those feelings of how you're handling it and what are you doing now. So I think that that as parents, we have to recognize that. And um, And I think even parents whose children were abused, but who maybe were not abused themselves could still benefit absolutely from your coaching skills. Absolutely. And, you know, because, you know, end of the day, these could be parents who are in their mid-career or things and they're managing, navigating. And, you know, you leave a child and you find out something like this happened. And what do you do? Who do you go to? Like, how do you share? So I'm always open to talk to people and see what their unique situation is, right? And I, the one thing I would say is, particularly for parents and children, like everybody has their own journey, right? And I think the more, I think that the parents, if they can see how coaching works and they are able to share, I think it will also give children, like how can we tell children to share if as adults we are like shoving it under the carpet? We are not comfortable. So I kudos to you that you made the choice to share with others. And that's been my experience when I shared, right? And and I was honestly, I wasn't even sharing it publicly. I was at a point where I could share with people. So in my private own business, you know, groups that I'm part of with women, I was trying to launch a round table and I was interviewing women. And in the course of that, I found at least 25% of the women that I knew when I shared something, they responded that they had experienced something similar. And they were all in their, you know, 35 plus, right? 40s. And they, they are powerful women, I tell you, right? So I think there's power in that sharing as well as for parents uh, to connect with and see that the world around us has shifted. You know, some of us grew up in the 80s or, or you know, had parents where everything is your child, like particularly women's fault, right? And of course, even for boys, you've got to be tough. But the world, the next generation, kids are sensitive, you know, particularly kids that are born after the 2000s, it's a totally different generation, you know, like so... Um, some things are okay to be talked about. And as parents, we don't have to be as hard, right? We might not know everything, but there are resources. I think that's one message I would want to leave the parents with. Absolutely. I think that if you can, as a parent, recognize that what happened isn't good, but there are things that you can do to heal from it. And I would agree with you in that that's one advantage that we probably have nowadays that, 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 you know, once upon a time they didn't have, there wasn't the internet, there wasn't a lot of attention paid to this at all. It was very much, everybody needed to keep quiet. Shh, shh, don't talk about it. And I think now that I think you and I would agree that, that it's not loud enough. It's not a frequent enough conversation, but the fact that it's beginning is a starting point and we have to be able to just keep the momentum going and keep moving. And and I think part of that is continuing to talk about it, but also continuing to heal and continuing to be able to give 
other people in the situation a message of of prevention and you know moving forward and healing. Yes, absolutely. One thing, a resource I would mention is uh, for parents. As as you were talking through, it came to me. I'd been on some some of the podcasts around with legal, you know, lawyers who help you know defend some of the victims' rights or help them get compensation. There mm-hmm. are other is, you know, where they are going and talking to churches or, you know, religious groups and cases that, that, that it happens across all kinds of, let me be clear, religions, right? It has nothing to do with it. I'm sure. just using like uh, churches, one of the, you know, cases that happens also in temples, right? So um, part of the work with the parents, you know, with all of these resources is also be aware, like, you know, in your society where you are, the more you're able to talk. And, you know, post Me Too in the 2016, 2017, I think that's where a lot of these things have come to surface. And it's no accident that during pandemic, many of us feared the worst, right? Or many of us kind of were left alone and we encountered, we learned something. So a lot of the things are coming in on surface, a lot of the podcasts and, you know, people wanted to connect on resources. So it's a, it's unfortunate, but it's a good problem to have. It's a good space that we are in compared to a decade ago. So it may feel like suddenly there's this, oh my God, so many things are happening, but this was always a hidden endemic. And, and now that it's coming to the surface, uh, the extent of it, and we have the resources, I think as society, as parents, like we can make a difference to keep this place, you know, our safer for our grandchildren, right? Than, than how we inherited. I always think like two generations later, because the, the healing that you do, the work that you do has like intergenerational impact. And then also... Some cases like such as yours, right, there's a there's a role of law enforcement and, you know, they, the perpetrator should be in jail. But there are other times, you know, you, I'm not saying that you can't send 90 percent of the people to jail, but sometimes not like a teenager exploring, like two siblings explore. Like, what do you do? You've got to understand the situation and see but, and address it. Right. Like it may be a shameful but then go through therapy or talk to other people and teaching. Uh, not every person belongs in a jail, you know, and that's not going to solve the problem, right? Sometimes part of it is, I believe, is also our own judgments around certain things like sexual education, like sexuality, like what is okay, what is not okay, and teaching and talking kids about that, uh, you know, channeling our efforts around that, that can go a long way. Right. Well, and I think, too, unfortunately, that just looking at at least the the prison system in America, it's not designed. I mean, it's actually not even spoken about that much. There's no rehabilitation. We we mention it, but those are really not accurate words. You know what I'm saying? They're, they're just um, there. There's not rehabilitation in place. And even with those people that are like genuinely wanting rehabilitation in terms of like not the actual prisoners themselves, but people in society. They're saying, no, we really need to to have, there's just not the staff and support system in our prison world to have rehabilitation. It really is those few people that are extremely motivated to self-diagnose whatever's going on with them in terms of a criminal whatever, and to self-heal and to self-whatever. I mean, they don't those people that are doing well in prison aren't doing well because of the support system that's there. They're doing well because for whatever reason, they had their aha moment in prison and just decided, that's it, I'm going to go and I'm going to do this and I'm going to fix it. And they did it probably with, with, with not much assistance or help. And I think we have to recognize that. I think it can be really difficult when it comes to sexual predation that um, I think statistically it, it, it can be very difficult for those people to be rehabilitated. But I also think that Again, every case is individual. And I think that what we also have to remember is that there are times when we've also seen statistically that people, that the predators not only create victims, but they also want to create, be a mentor, essentially. They want to create new predators. That's part of their goal is to keep it going, basically. And I think that if there's a way to catch somebody early enough in the cycle to be able to say, hey, this was wrong. You shouldn't have been on TV. Do you know, you know what I'm saying? I think there's those kids that that would never, you know, that might not ever be predators themselves. They've just become, you know, had the, you know, things happen to them, yourself included, obviously. And I think that we just have to recognize that, A, there's no guarantee that a person is going to become a predator. And I agree with you, depending on what's happened to them in terms of their predatory behavior, there's ways that we can at least attempt to try and get them out of that cycle 
you know, and I think potentially maybe even the conversation continues that at some point when we recognize that they can't be brought out of that, that that's who they're going to be forever. What does that mean to our society? Because there are people out walking around all over the place and you can say, well, they're registered sex offenders, but that doesn't do anything for anybody. But, you know, like, I, so here's the thing, like I have, I mean, if we were to do a podcast on the prison system, I think it'll be a whole nother like podcast because we have the largest population percentage number, like in terms of prisoners. And I don't know that that's making us safer anyway. Like, you know, I, and I think we can agree that, you know, whoever has the resources, sometimes they get away scot-free and others without the resources end up in prison with all the bond and system, right? And and, and of course, I, we, I think we all agree that, you know, there are some people who belong in jail, particularly in some cases you do, but there's a large part where we as adults, like we can solve and we can manage that, right? Particularly when it's in our family. I'm not saying that, you know, you know, some of them don't belong to the jail, but like that's having the same conversation because it's, you know, the people that are abused, uh, many a times they actually go on to abuse others. And or I'll, I'll tell you a personal story. Like I, for the longest time, I felt until I shared that I might have taught my brother to be, you know, I might have abused him or I might have done something, right? So I had this conversation with him because I was like literally small. I don't know if he was abused or I, you know, touched him or anyone, you know, else abused him. So I literally, when I was having one of the conversations, I had one of the fear of like really like with a lot of courage, like I had the conversation with my brother. He's like, I didn't know that happened, baby. You could have told me. And then I was like, hey, I was also worried that, you know, something like this happened to you or like, no, no, nothing like that happened. And that I'm fairly sure now with everything like, you know, that follow up conversations and things that I've had. It is real because sometimes you and in my case, thankfully, nothing happened. But I know other cases where people do become very active. Right. So so early, the, the sooner we can have these conversations, give them the resources, whether it's a therapist, whether it's a coach, whether it's some any like any qualified trained, you know, this thing, right? And Absolutely. even like having the trust as a parent that, hey, it happened, but it has no control over you and just monitor the situation and, you know, trust the child and see if there are any other symptoms like they're withdrawn or not and just monitor that. I think that can go a long way in just creating that safety. Absolutely. So now with your company, you said you don't take children, obviously. So is it like 18 and above? Is there, is it people that are like already, that are like established in the workforce? Is like, can you define that? Usually right now, my clients are mostly mid 30, mostly 40 plus, right? <laughs> Particularly on the coaching side of the thing, because that's where a lot of women I, I, I would see probably the message resonates. So they find some of the coping mechanisms don't work. So they reach out. Now, Children, I probably I reach through outreach the message through some of the podcasts for like adults. I also speak a lot. So for any other religious places or any opportunity that I get, hey, like children's like school. So I'm always open for those, but I don't directly like work with children. That's not a, a business line right now that's defined because that that can get tricky depends on you know what they need right so but there are parents with their supervision they need resources and things that's certainly i see in the very much in my remit right in terms of like being a mom being a parent like i want to create the safest world possible for our children absolutely (laughs) i started the business essentially definitely i definitely agree with that so how can people go about finding you Sure. So my website is Connext. So that's K-N-E-K-X-T dot com. And I'll drop the the name on the, you know, in the on your resource page as well. Yes. You can find me on LinkedIn. My full name, like I said, Kalpashri Gupta. So that's K-A-L-P-A-S-H-R-E-E Gupta, G-U-P-T-A. Um, I'm on LinkedIn. So I'm very active in those. They can sign up with my newsletter on LinkedIn. Those are the two primary ways. I am also, um, I often go on TikTok. Yes, that's one of the platforms where some of the so uh, younger ones are there. So yes, so through TikTok, mm-hmm. some of the teenagers might find me and hopefully, you know, if they are there, then they can see what is age appropriate, what the content allows. But I share a lot of even there. And I think I'm very clear when I give advice on um, if it's a child or someone watching, right? Um, my advice won't be the same. It's like, go talk to a safe person, right? Whoever you can. And then Whereas for adults, it's a slightly different kind of, you know, um, advice. 
So those are the ways they can find me. And I always, you know, if any of the parents in their middle life or any late in life, they're unsure and they are looking for any kind of coaching, I always invite them to set up a coaching consult with me and we can figure out, you know, the plan on how to navigate. That's very much in my wheelhouse. Awesome. Let me just say thank you so much for being with us. I greatly appreciate it. Is there any type of final thoughts that you have for our listeners? Here's my hope, right? For parents, right? Like, I just know that you did the best as parents you could in raising your child. It was not your child's fault. It was not your fault. And give yourself the grace, right? Like, we all are still whole and we are still worthy and loved. And I think that's the message that I want to leave the audience with. And uh, yeah, they'll be okay. Your children will be okay. Thank you. That's it, folks. Thank you all for joining us for this episode of Through the Undertow. We hope you'll take a moment to visit our website at www.throughtheundertow.com. That's www.throughthrutheundertow.com. While you're there, join our mailing list for updates on new episodes coming and some of the new things we'll be adding in the future. There's also a page to donate. It is through the generous support of our donors that we're able to continue to bring you content. Until next time... Don't forget to take a moment to breathe. Know you're not alone, and we're here to help you aid through the undertone.